0: I was thinking about uh, how to introduce this final section in uh, verses 10 through through 12, and my mind went back to uh, a story that, that you've heard before. It seemed appropriate. It was about me hearing myself on the radio. You remember that story? Our children were little. I was giving one of our babysitters a, a ride home because she was too young to drive and is we normally do, I would take one of the kids, so they were sitting in the back seat, and and I was just driving along listening to Christian radio in the, the front, I don't remember exactly which, which station it was, but during a commercial break, when you're driving, a lot of different things going on in your mind, there's something kind of playing in the background, you're focusing on driving and thinking about other things. Well, a commercial came on, and I heard this 30-second outtake of a of a sermon that, that somebody had put on the radio, These, you know, where they lift a line out of somebody's message and um, they put it on there for a second of encouragement. But my first thought, whenever I heard this preacher, was not positive or uplifting. In fact, I thought to myself, wow, that guy really has a thick accent. Um, he actually sounds like a hick. My second thought was, that guy sounds really familiar. Who is he? And then as quick as that second thought came, a third one barreled in. That's me. I was actually listening to myself. And a brother who attends our church that owns a radio station had taken sermons and without me or anybody else knowing it, pulled some encouragements out of it and put it on the radio. And there are all kinds of morals that I could take from, from that story, like count your blessings, you think I sound bad now, you ought to heard me 18 years ago. But the one I think that's fitting is that God has many ways to expose your heart, in, including reflecting it back to you when you're judging someone else and literally realize you're judging yourself. In Romans 7, though, Paul says one of his primary ways, one of God's primary ways to reveal our hearts to us is through the law, which includes some methods that you would naturally think about. The law would reveal to us what's right and wrong, but some other ways that wouldn't immediately come to your mind, the way that the the law works in us. So I want to bring you back to that mirror again today, because seeing an accurate reflection of ourselves is necessary before we'll we'll actually turn to God's answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to finish up this second section in Romans, and then we're going to take a break for Christmas. Next Sunday, you have a special treat, Pastor Tom Drian, uh, Dr. Drian. I'll be here along with, with Tom, but, uh, but he's the pastor at Grace Life Church in London, a friend of mine. I just preached for him recently. He's going to be here with us preaching to, uh, to you, and then Lord willing, We'll take a break for the Christmas season and then come back to Romans and finish up this great chapter with the things I want to do, I don't do, and we'll figure out what Paul is saying there. The section that we're looking at this morning is describing this work of the law, this work that the law does when it comes in contact with, with sinners. It has, the law has an intended purpose, but it actually brings about a completely different result, which we'll see today. We can turn it all around and also say that this is a section about the way that sin misuses God's good law for its own evil purposes. And today we're going to see sin's most nefarious work of all. It's the work of deception. And Paul's explaining in chapter 7 why God's law was not his final plan in, in the work of redemption. And he's also removing any misunderstanding that anybody would have that he viewed the law as bad or part of the problem in any way. He says it cannot save and it cannot sanctify, but the law is still good and just and holy because it's from God. In fact, God never intended the law to be the way that he saved is people, which is what he told us in verse six, verse six. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. I mean, God's old covenant was always supposed to be replaced by the new covenant. And that's what Paul is not ashamed of proclaiming. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. And the good news is the Messiah has come and, and power has come through the spirit. The spirit actually has the power to transform you internally, even though an external law can't do that. And chapter 7 is explaining how this change took place and, and why. And we're right in the middle of this third uh, the, these three explanations. So where Paul defines and now Paul defends the virtue of the law. So right after explaining our relationship to how the law has changed, he immediately defends the law's honor in verses 7 through 12. And he explains the law's intended work. He, he emphatically says in this section, verse 7 through 12, the law is not sin, nor the originator of sin. The law is from God, so it's, it has the characteristics of God. But it does have a specific work when it comes in contact with, with sinners. Three of them, in fact. He says, the law reveals sin. That's something you would expect. The law revs up sin. That's not something you would expect. And it also helps us recognize sin's real power and the way in which it does that you would not expect either. And we'll look at that this morning. The first virtuous work, if you haven't been with us, we'll blow through this really quickly. Is it reveals sin Verse seven? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul says, don't blame the law. It's not responsible for sin, but it does reveal sin to us and in us. I mean, the Mosaic law is God's grace to us. I mean, God didn't leave us, didn't leave us for what is right and wrong to our consciences. I mean, governed by this general law that's written on our hearts. I mean, the Mosaic law came and explicitly defined for us God's standard in bold black lines. You can think of the Ten Commandments there. God's law is written within within every human being, but it's distorted by sin nature, which is why you see morality coming out in different ways, in different different places. And the rule is inconsistent because of our consciences. They're imperfect. Some are weak. Some are too strong. And so God provides the Mosaic law to make things plain to us. And by doing so... He revealed sin to us, which then revealed more sin in us, which is this second work. It actually revs up sin. <clears throat> but sin, verse 8, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin lies dead. It, 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 it Its full power is not not stirred up. Paul says the law helped me see the true nature of my desires and how truly corrupt they actually are. But it did something more than that. It actually provided an opportunity for sin. Paul said the law is used like a launching pad for sin. It's like a military base of operations because before the law, sin was like a dormant power. But the law seizes it for for evil purposes. And and Paul says when the law comes in, it stirs up rebellion in me. I want to do the very opposite of what I'm told not to do. It stirs me up in protest. I object to any boundary against my freedom. I mean, who is anyone to tell me what to do? And then I complain against God. It's unfair to restrict me in any way. And it also stirs up more sin. Rather than restrain me, sin says, hey, maybe you should do that very thing. Maybe that would actually feel pretty good. And all of those works, both of those works, uh, come together to reveal to us how truly needy we we actually are. And this is where we left off last time. The law, this work that it does in us, helps us recognize the true power of sin. Look at verse 9. Paul describes how this work took place in him. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came... Sin awakened, sin became alive, and I died. I realized I was condemned. And this is an analysis of what the law did in the Apostle Paul. What he just got done describing in verses 7 and 8. How it reveals sin to us and and in us and stirs us up toward more sin. Paul says, this is how it happened to me. Here he dissects it from a personal standpoint. And he divides his testimony into two periods. Before conversion and then after conviction. There was a time that Paul called being apart from the law. He was apart from the law. And then there was a moment when the commandment came to him. And the key to understanding the verse is, 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 are those two time periods? I mean, what does it mean to be apart from the law? And when was it that the commandment came to the apostle Paul? Well, the first part of verse 9, when he was apart from the law, is what it was like. Paul says, I thought I was alive before the law arrested me. That's when I was apart from the law. The second half is an analysis of what it was like when the law exposed him. And he summarizes his experience in both of those time periods. I mean, one of the ways that we can see what Paul means here, that he's talking about this this, this, this awakening that, that happened in him, is there was never a time whenever he was completely without the law. I mean, Paul was a Jew and a Pharisee at that, so there was never a time in his life when he lacked the law's literal presence there was a time in his life that he had lacked a clear understanding of what the law demanded. And when he was in that phase, he thought he was alive. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was okay. And not only that, this this comes on an explanation of how the law is working in sinners. And so Paul's applying it to himself. Paul thinks back to his days as a Jew who believed himself right with God, and he later learned that he really wasn't. And then he describes how he realized it. That's when he fell under conviction. He says, before the law showed me my sin, I was alive and sin was dead. But after I fully understood the law, sin became alive and I died. And being alive contextually here is what Paul believed about himself. He believed himself right with God. He believed he had a clear conscience. He was sinning ignorantly, which is what we, we saw as testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says he was a blasphemer. He was a wicked man when he sinned in ignorance and unbelief. What does that mean? It wasn't that, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, Paul knew exactly what he was doing, but he thought he was doing the right thing when he figured out he was actually doing the wrong. And here is how that was possible. He had the law, but the law didn't have him yet. But when the commandment came to him, he saw how utterly sinful he really was. It stirred up in him what was already there. And once that got stirred up, he realized how condemned he was and he died sin came to life here when Paul says sin came to life it means exactly what he just got done saying look at verse 8 because it it defines what what he means by apart from the law and, and this this deadness of sin verse 8 but sin seizing the opportunity offered by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting for apart from the law Sin was dead. Paul says, I was once apart from the law. And when I was apart from the law, sin, its full power wasn't stirred up. Apart from that work of the law, sin lies dormant. Paul knew what the commandment said, but not the depth of the violation. And When that was the case, he said, I was apart from the law, apart from its exposing work. But whenever the law arrested him, he saw he was condemned and the power of sin was there. But Paul didn't realize it. And the Holy Spirit does that work just like you. There was a moment, you're a believer this morning, when God showed you what you truly, truly are, truly were before him, in a moment when you realize your condition. But you may hear that, like I did, and you may think, I mean, how is it possible for someone to have the law? I mean, I understand about me, like, you know, I didn't go to church, or, you know, I was I got in with a bad crowd or even your own life. You got your own story. And you may think, I understand how I didn't get it. And then somebody shared the gospel with me and I, and, and I, 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 my eyes were open. But, but how could this happen for somebody like Paul? He raised as a Jew who has the law around him. He's living in it. He's breathing it. How, how is it possible for him to do that and then later find out that he wasn't pleasing to God at all? I mean, in fact, realize that he's not only failing, but he was actually blaspheming God. Well, that's what he's going to tell us in these next two verses. And the short answer is because of sin's deception. Look at verse 10. He continues his thought. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. It's a further uh, statement. He just tax it on here. Paul says he, he found out something he didn't realize before. There was a time when he thought differently, and when he grasped it, it turned out to be the exact opposite of what he thought. And then verse 11 explains how that happened. Look at verse 11. He says, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Paul says in verse 10, the commandment, this commandment was unto life. It was intended to bring about life. That's what I believe, but I found another result instead. The first phrase means the, the commandment had a purpose. It had an intent. The law had a specific intent. The law was intended to bring life. The second phrase means the actual result that it had for Paul. He says, but it proved to result in death for me. That was the actual result of the law. The actual result of the law coming to him was death. The law was supposed to bring him life, but it actually brought death. And you read that and you say, how can Paul say that? (laughs) I mean, how can he say the intent of the law was to bring life? I mean, I thought he's been telling me since chapter 3 that the law can't justify me in any way. Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Well, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Yeah, Paul, I, that's what I understood. So what do you mean here? Or you can go to Galatians 3, which is even more direct. It says, now that no one is justified before God, or justified by the law before God, is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. It's by faith, because the law can't do that work. I mean, so how is it evident? I mean, it seems like you're saying the opposite here. The intention of the law was to bring about life. And the answer is, it's quite simple. Remember, Paul here is defending the virtue of the law. He's saying the law is not the problem. In fact, God's original intent for the law, the reason he gave the law, the law in and of itself has a good end, a good purpose. He's reminding us the law is not the problem. He's simply pointing out the law was not created to bring about death. In fact, if men kept it, it would lead to life. Look at Leviticus 18.5. Moses says, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments. He's talking the words of the Lord. By which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. But the if in that verse is key, isn't it? Because men don't. Why don't they? Because of sin, the power of sin that's been reigning in your heart since the fall. But don't think Moses works for it. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. Words of Paul, words of Moses, words of Jesus. They're all saying the same thing that the Lord says here. Luke 10. The lawyer stood up and put him to the test. This is Jesus. And here's what he said. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the man answered, the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And look at the Lord's answer to him. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then you get a little divine insight into his heart. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? I mean, Jesus says to the lawyer the same thing Paul says. The law is good. It's holy and it's righteous. And it's not the problem. Do Both of those things, and you shall live. And then he quotes the two greatest commandments, which are actually a summary of the whole law. And if a man could do that very thing as God intended, he would live. But he won't, because he can't, due to sin. There's never been a man or a woman who has loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, or their neighbor as themselves, because of sin. So looking at it from one side, Jesus and Moses and Paul says, if you keep the law, there would be blessing and and life. But from the other angle, due to sin, no one actually does. And so no one will be justified by the law. The intention of the law and then the actual result of the law. Why? Because of sin. Look at Romans 2.25 because Paul has already brought both of these ideas together for us. Here's the both halves of these truths together. Romans 2.25, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. There it is. Keeping the law would have value if you actually did, but you don't, so it doesn't. Paul again is holding up the virtue of the law, revealing where the real problem lies. The law directed people in righteousness. It brings blessing. If it's kept, it shows us right and wrong. It guides us in life. The problem is neither Paul nor anyone else has ever faithfully kept it because of sin. And so the result of the law that was intended for life actually brought about death. That's the condemnation that's come. And notice that, that Paul, once again, you see that Paul's talking about his own personal experience. Look at verse 10. And this commandment which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. I mean, he says the commandment was found to me. It proved to result in death for me. When did that happen? Well, in verse 9, when his eyes were opened. And the word here is interesting. It's in the passive form. It proved to result in death for me. I mean, indicating this was not some great search that the Apostle Paul performed like Solomon in uh, in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon looks and looks for the answers to life, and, and and he goes in every different direction, and he finally concludes, what's the conclusion of the matter? Fear God, keep His commandments, because God's going to bring everything into judgment. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul didn't set out with his Old Testament to find out for sure whether he could keep the law. He thought he could. He thought he did. He thought he was. And through diligent study, he then realized it brought about death. The word that he uses here means it's something that was not brought about by his own initiative. And we know that for sure. Literally, he was knocked off a horse. This was something that happened to Paul. He was passive. He experienced it whenever the Spirit of God disclosed it. And he's describing again that, that moment when he realized the true intent of the law. And you say... But how can that be the case? I mean, you still haven't answered. How? Well, Paul says, let me explain a little further. Look at verse 11. How could Paul once think one thing, not fully understand the law, and then it change? Well, for verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. So There's the commandment. The law is there. Sin seizes that opportunity. Deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Notice, once again, Paul's explaining something. He uses the little word for, explaining the question that, that I have, that, that you likely have. I mean, how is this possible? How can a man or a woman know the law, like Paul, so intently? Memorize the Ten Commandments. Know the book of Exodus. Whatever you've done, be raised on it. Be raised around it. Even delight in his mind. Even think he's pleasing to God and not actually see he's condemned. How's that possible? Well, the answer is right here. He says sin deceives you to think you're something that you're not and deceives us to think that we're actually keeping the law when we're not. That's how it happens. And the world's full of people like that. I was in that category at one point in time. You were as well. I mean, just go ask anyone if they're a good person. And you'll undoubtedly, they'll tell you, I'm not perfect, I've made plenty of mistakes, but I'm basically a pretty good person. That's the deceitfulness of sin that leads them to think that. Because the Bible says there's none good. No, not one. And notice Paul says, uh, he repeats a lot of what he's already told us, which tells us we're that dense if we need it this many times, right? But he adds one important thing that's new. Look at verse, verse 11 again. For sin... He says sin's the real problem. That's not new. He's told us that multiple times. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, sin seizes on the law. That's not new. And it uses it to increase its power. That's not new. And because of sin, I'm condemned through the commandment, put me to death. That's not new. But it does all of that by deceiving me. That's new. That's new. Once again, he's describing the work of sin. Showing us what this work looks like in our hearts it stirs up sin, reveals, but it also deceives us. I mean, how can Paul think he was alive but really dead? One of sin's primary activities is deception, it deceives you. Jeremiah 17 9. I know you know the verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And one of the heart's greatest works is to deceive the possessor of that heart. And he says, Jeremiah says, who can know it? Who can actually know? Meaning you can't. And he goes on to say, God's the one. God tries the rain. God's the one that that reveals to you. So there was a time in Paul's life when he believed himself to have true spiritual life. Although in reality, sin using the commandment was misleading him. I mean, it was a Martin Luther type type of experience for Paul. Except without without the struggle. I mean, Luther thought at one point he... He could find eternal life as a monk. But as he experienced life, trying to deal with sin, learning more and more about the law and right and wrong, he found that within his heart there was something that was not fixable, deceiving him. Just confess a little more, Martin. Just scrub the floor a little more, Martin. Just a little more. Just a little more, and then you'll be right with God. And he went through that process, and he began to realize the real problem. The law was a mirror that held that up. Even worse, the law was like gasoline that fired the engine. But even worse than both of those things, sin uses the law to pull the wool over our eyes and make us think that the law is actually the, the problem. And Paul's looking back as a saved man on his unsaved life, and he says, this is what I thought at one point. And this is how I realized that what the real problem was. And now I see the problem wasn't the law, it was me. And this happened because sin deceived me. Sin's deception. And the devil knows this work of sin well, and he uses it without fail. I mean, Satan can't convince you to destroy your life outright, so he has to deceive you. I mean, don't get the idea that the devil's up there in a little red suit zapping you with with some kind of evil pitchfork. He uses the very thing that's in you to do his work. Uses your own sin. He can't convince you to leave your spouse outright, so he deceives you with things like feelings. I just don't love them anymore, and therefore leads you to the natural conclusion to leave. He can't take away your salvation or change your security before God, so he deceives you and convinces you through your conscience that God loves everyone else just a little bit more than you, and then you act upon how you feel. He can't convince you to outright deny the Bible, so he picks at some, some struggle, some felt need that you have, and draws your attention to the fact that you've been memorizing verses and reading the Bible over and over and over with that one issue, and you still have the problem. Maybe the Bible isn't working. There's a thousand ways that he uses deception. And the Bible says we're not to be ignorant of his devices. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that, that we are to be sober, be on alert. Paul is pointing out in this passage, one of the ways he works is that he is a willing ally in your own heart. Sin that dwells within you is a willing tool that the devil uses for deception. Sin is not just powerful, Paul says. It's not just so wicked that it uses God's holy law to its advantage, but sin is completely deceitful. And The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin in, in many places. In fact, sin is so deceiving through false teachers. Matthew 24 says that if it was possible, even the very elect would be deceived by false prophets. If it were possible, thank God it's not, because God will preserve his own. But that's how powerful the delusion and the deception is. So how does sin deceive you? Well, for one, it tells you that there won't be any consequences for the things that you do, which is what Paul covered in Romans chapter 6. Sin away because grace will cover it all. And Paul told us that if you're thinking that way, you're deceived. Because a true believer doesn't abuse grace like that. Another way is sin tells you God's trying to keep something good from you. Something that's forbidden. This is the deception in the garden. You won't die. You'll be like God. God's just holding out on you. It raises doubts about the goodness of God. It, it tells you how unfair it is that something should be withheld from you. If you actually had it, then you would be truly fulfilled. So the therapist says, the, the, the whole thing about God and sin, that's your problem. You're emotionally and sexually and developmentally repressed. You just need to forget about your conscience and just let go. All the while, sin leading you to death. I mean, Listen, the devil doesn't care what lie you fall for just as long as you fall. And Paul says you can't blame the devil. It's sin dwelling in you that's actively deceiving you. Let me give you a very practical example that was very helpful to me. Lloyd Jones used about how sin deceives, just how it works out in in real life. He said, We can know, we can know the damaging effects of sin and yet go right on doing it. I mean, people can know the damaging effects of drugs and alcohol and then go right on using them. Maybe not the day they have the hangover, but maybe the next day. I mean, I read an article last week that said the death rate in Oregon has increased 13 times from what it was now that they've legalized drugs. You know, Oregon has legalized everything, meth, Opioids, marijuana, whatever, whatever you want. And the death rate has increased 13 times since they've done it. I mean, do you think that that will cause them to reverse that? Absolutely not, it won't. They'll start taxpayer, fun, uh, taxpayer funded programs to hand out Narcon to, uh, Narcan to all citizens to combat this pandemic of overdoses. Like those two things are completely disconnected. These overdoses are just jumping out of the bushes on people and just waylaying them. And then they'll say it's a human right for everyone to have Narcan, and you're heartless if you would oppose something like that. I mean, what's wrong with you? I mean, do do you want to see people die? I mean, can't you see that they're oppressed now by your ableism? It's the deceitfulness of sin. People that take drugs knowing the damage will keep a right on taking them. He said certain people know the horrible health effects of certain immoral or unclean practices. Well, they'll go right on being immoral, taking the risks. And God forbid that you should tell those people not to do those things to begin with. I mean, what's wrong with you? You're a Neanderthal. I mean, you must want to harm children by keeping this information from them. We need to provide paraphernalia to them and vivid instructions to actually protect them. It's an example of the deceitfulness of sin. It's entirely illogical to do something, knowing it will harm you, and yet people do them anyway. So why do people go on doing that? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. Why did you go on doing that? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, think of uh, uh, the error, the, the deceit in more serious terms. Why would anyone in their right mind choose hell rather than heaven when heaven is freely offered by the grace of God? It's the deceitfulness of sin. I mean, why would a man wait until later in life so he can enjoy a few moments of fleeting pleasure and take a chance on suffering an eternity of torment? I'll tell you, it's the deceitfulness of sin. And you you, you say, the logic in that math equation just doesn't add up, and you're right. It doesn't add up. So why do they do it? Paul says, right here's the answer. Sin continues in spite of warnings. Sin continues in spite of our remorse. After we get caught once or a hundred times, we keep right on doing it. Sin continues in spite of consequences. I mean, I would pray, God, please get me home on Friday night. I swear I'll never do it again. And I'd do the exact same thing the following week. J.M. Boyce, quoting another, said sin deceives you and says your desires or your imaginations don't matter. And then once you give in to sin, your conscience flips the bill on you. It it turns it around. And and now your conscience condemns you and says, "Uh, you you, you sinned once, you might as well do it again. You've broken God's holy law. Look how horrible you are. There's no hope for you. You might as well just keep right on doing it. The deceitfulness of sin, that's how it works. Verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. The word Paul uses here is not just to trick someone, but to completely and totally immerse in deception. It means flying totally blind until someone opens your eyes. Which is why Paul describes the unsaved state, when you're lost, the lost man, in 1 Thessalonians, like a drunk in the middle of pitch black, groping around in the darkness, inebriated, without your faculties. But Paul's explaining God's use of the law, and he says it's a tool to do this work. That's not, it's not the problem. And notice Paul makes it clear, it wasn't sin that killed him. It wasn't the law. He says sin took advantage of the situation, marshaled its troops, deceived me, brought about death. And so having shown us all of this this work definitively, Paul draws his conclusion. Look at verse 12. Here's his conclusion about the law. After laying out his case from data to his own personal life, so then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 12 is Paul's conclusion, what he's been arguing since it's verse 7. He says, so then, here's my conclusion. So then... After what I've proven to you, the law is not sin. It may be used by sin, but it's not sinful. It's like a knife that can be used to slice bread to feed someone or it can be used by an evil person to stab someone. But the problem's not the knife. The same gun in the hands of, the, of law enforcement brings about security, but in the hands of a criminal it brings about evil, but the problem's not the gun. And Paul says it, the law is, 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 is not just an inan, inanimate object like a piece of steel. He says the law is like God. Paul says God's law is holy. It's His law, so it takes on His character. Just as He is holy, His law is holy. It's as far as from sin as it could possibly be. But he goes on, verse twelve. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy. Notice he changes words here and he repeats himself. I mean, maybe making a distinction here like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount when he, when he says, you know, uh, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled. So Paul could be saying here that the law is like the whole mosaic code. So the, so the whole of the law is holy and so are the parts. The commandment is like each part in particular. It's all holy. The whole thing, in whatever you can drill down, the, the smallest part, it's also holy. The whole thing also just be synonymous. It's likely the first since he repeats himself. Regardless, Paul's saying the law's primary quality is holiness. But he says it has two more characteristics. He says it's also righteous and good. The law is just. What it means? It's right. The law makes no unfair demands. So why do I think it does? Because sin's deceiving me. When I say that's wrong or I don't like that, I chafe against that, it's sin deceiving me. It's applied without partiality. It's never wrong whenever it judges sinners. That's what Paul says. The law isn't slanted based on who you are or what you have. He says it's also good. Leon Morris says the law has our welfare in mind, not our hurt. The aim of the law is for our good. Is that what you always felt like? The aim of my mom and dad's instructions to me was good. No, that's not what I thought. God doesn't just make rules to kill your joy. He draws a line because what's on the other side is bad. The law is good. Psalm 25.8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. I mean, Paul is drawing out here the, the character of the law. And this is not. You could go several other places in the Bible. The most lengthy one is Psalm 119. It's the longest testimony. Psalm 119. And since we don't have time for that, I want you to turn to Psalm 19. Because Psalm 19 describes the law and its work in a very powerful and succinct way. Psalm 19. We'll end here. You probably know this psalm The psalm does the same thing that the Apostle Paul does, describes the character and the work of God's law. It's divided in two sections. You probably know verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring His handiwork, the work of His hand. Verses 1 through 6 is all focused on nature. It's on general revelation. But in verse 7, he flips and he starts talking about special revelation, the Bible, the law. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. He declares in verses 1 through 6 that God's revealed himself to everyone. So, no one is excused. But then the topic shifts from creation to the law. And and notice that the the first line describes a characteristic about the law. It it describes its character, what it is. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's what it is. And then the second line describes what it does. It restores the soul. It's what it is and what it does. And it goes back and forth. It describes this powerful work. What it is, what it does. What it is, what it does. And there are six statements about the law here. The first one's right here in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law is the sum of what God has revealed for our instructions. Think of this word as like the whole Bible. It's perfect. means it's complete. It's sufficient. It means the Bible lacks nothing. It's comprehensive in nature. It contains everything necessary to one's spiritual life. That's contrasted to the Imperfect, incomplete, flawed reasoning of men. That's what it is. That's what it does. It's it's sufficient to convert the soul, restore the soul. The word means to refresh or to transform. The the Bible is sufficient to transform a person. David says the law is so powerful and so comprehensive that it can actually transform an entire person. Changing them into what God intends them to be. It was not the worldly reasoning of my pastor that convinced me that I needed to be saved. It was the preaching of Jesus Christ. Look at verse the second part of verse seven. Here, what else it does? The, the scripture, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Scripture is trustworthy, and it imparts wisdom. It makes the wise simple. David comments further, and he says the testimony of Yahweh is certain and sure. The, the testimony. Speaks of Scripture's divine witness. The Bible is God's witness. That's why whenever you deny the Bible or you you reject God Himself, you call the Lord a liar. These are His words. The Bible, in its entirety, declares to be God breathed, and there's not one letter that's not included in that statement. The word is sure means it's His testimony is unwavering. It's trustworthy. It's immovable. It's reliable. it, It won't fail. You can trust God's testimony. And it will do something. It will make the wise simple. Or, I'm sorry, the simple wise. You look back at your unsaved life, you think, at least I do, man, i was so stupid. How could I have been that dumb to believe that? How did you come to see that? How did you become wise when you were once simple, the Bible? The Bible makes an ignorant... Sin, simple person, wise. And scripture is right. It brings joy. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Exactly what Paul says. It's just rejoicing the heart. Precepts or statutes of, of the Lord, of the, His divine principles, guidelines for character and, and conduct. It brings happiness in life. I used to think as an unsaved man, I don't want to become a Christian because then I won't get, to, won't get to have fun. I'll have to stop everything, I, uh, stop everything I like to do. And I did stop everything I like to do. The problem was, was I like to do wrong things, and the Lord gave me a new want to. Look at verse 8. Here's the fourth one. The, uh, scripture is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Commandment stresses the Bible's non-optional nature. Part of Christianity is you acknowledge the authority of Scripture not just your savior he's also your master it's pure it means it's clear it means the bible is not mystifying or confusing i mean god's word is not a, a book of religious recipes that only the great sages can cook up Even the smallest child can understand it and the deepest theologian can't exhaust its depth and because of god's absolute clarity it brings enlightenment understanding to the eyes Scripture's clean, enduring forever. Here's the fifth one. Look at verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Fear is synonym of God, for God's word. Reverential all of God. Scripture is clean. It's without corruption. It's pure. Truth about God and worshiping Him is undefiled, endures forever. And here's the final one verse, verse 9. Scripture is true, it's altogether righteous. Judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous all together. He summarizes and gives this final verdict. Judgments means the divine verdict. God gives His divine verdict in the Bible. The supreme judge of all the earth declares His verdict. There are so many recommendations and theories about how to have a good life, how to fix this or how to, how to fix that. They're the best that human wisdom can, can come up with. And if you've ever tried that advice, you know where it leads. Hopeless and empty. The supreme judge of the universe has given you truth. And that truth is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, found in Scripture. And it's good. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. I mean, then David brings us back to the same place Paul does. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Quit me of hidden faults. Also keep, me, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. He says none of that's true about sin. He's talking about sin's deception. Sin deceives you. It leaves you with empty promises. David says, I can't even discern the work that it's doing in me without your help, Lord. Without the Bible. They're hidden faults. They're presumptuous sins. Sin from my own arrogance. Just let them not remain in me. And if you show me and you forgive me, then I'll be blameless. How does this blamelessness before God mean? What do I need? Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Blamelessness means outward as well as inward righteousness. Not only what I say, but what's going on in my heart and my mind. How do you get that? He says, from the Lord, who's my redeemer. I can't get that from myself. The Lord has to redeem me. He, He offers us forgiveness and grace. And He does that through the Lord Jesus Christ. But all sin offers you is more of it. And it will happily deceive you. Does the old saying goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing or wanting to pay. It's true. Paul says it's a deceiving work. I mean, who in their right mind, if the devil came knocking on your front door, announced who he was, who in their right mind would let him in? I mean, if you knew today exactly where sin would lead you, would you actually have made that choice back then? So why did you make that choice? Because you were deceived. Would you actually live life for this little fleeting moment to, to open your eyes in death and stand before the Lord as a judge and be cast into outer darkness? No, you wouldn't do that. But if you are deceived, you would. And Paul says sin works by deception. Why would you want to turn anywhere else but Jesus Christ? who gives us eyes to see and washes us clean, and that's where he's going to take us in chapter 8. First, he has to show us sin's work. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I am so thankful that I was blind, but now I see. And Lord, that was not because I was smart or because I picked up the Bible and read it myself and I was so wise to see what it said. It was because you were so gracious and so merciful. And you would just come back to me time and time again with truth after truth, even when I was rejecting or was deceived or wasn't understanding. And then there was a moment when the light came on. Father God, I pray you would turn the lights on for anyone who's still in darkness. And I pray that Jesus would flood in and wash them clean and would give them new eyes to see and new desires, new understanding of your word, and that they would treasure it then more than honey, more than gold like David did. And I pray for us as Christians, Lord, that we wouldn't fall to the deceitfulness of sin and flesh that's still there, but that the the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight because you're our Lord and you're our Redeemer. And I ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.